Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is Tools to Manage Risk in Portfolios and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Maddie Desner, Investment Specialist, Multi-Asset Solutions, and I will be your moderator for today's episode. Joining me for our discussion is Jeff Geller, Chief Investment Officer, Multi-Asset Solutions, and Rob O'Reilly, Global Co-Head of the Asset Management Solutions business, both within J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us, Maddie. Happy to be here. In today's market environment, many of our clients are talking about what to do at the end of the cycle. How do you manage risk in portfolios in a way that both honors the asset allocation insights that they have, but helps to smooth out some of the bumps in the road? Why don't we start with that as a broad topic first? Well, I mean, the first thing is before turning to the asset allocation decision, at the end of the cycle, we've got to make a decision about what risks we think are most dominant that we're concerned with. Unlike 2008, we don't necessarily are positioning for a bubble in credit. We are not necessarily positioning as though we're going to get rampant inflation. But the one risk that we are focused on is that growth may be less than stellar as we head into 2019. So when we think about end of cycle, the risks that we're most focused on are around growth. And when you think about the end of the cycle, just given the concerns there, and Rob, given your experience managing the liabilities on behalf of large financial institutions and now as the co-CEO of the asset allocation team, multi-asset solutions at J.P. Morgan, and what risks we are exposed to, this is not a topic that you are unfamiliar with, both in the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and maybe what's unfolding today. So how do you think about managing risks at the end of the cycle? People who listen to me will hear me speak about degrees of freedom making sure you've got plenty of degrees of freedom. I hate being put in a position where you're left with only one choice. I like to be a choice maker rather than a choice taker or be in that position. You look to the things that will help you generate those degrees of freedom. Diversification is a great friend. Liquidity is a great friend. Resiliency. These are the things that you look to in creating your portfolio to help you weather the storm more effectively. We don't know how things are going to unfold. Uh, It was Mark Twain who said, history doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. I've probably got that quote wrong. But we don't know how things are going to unfold. But for sure, having the ability to make more choices than the people next to you will improve the quality of your portfolio and the returns that your portfolio will have. And I think this also does tie into some of the asset allocation decisions that we're making today, both decisions within the equity portfolio and the fixed income portfolio. So if you look at within the equity portfolio, the place where we have continued to shift risk, and I think this was something that was a fairly meaningful shift over the second quarter, was to emphasize the U.S. versus the rest of the world. I mean, not only is that the strongest fundamental story where we're seeing improving ROEs and improving earnings and forward guidance for earnings as we head into the rest of the year and next year, but business sentiment, consumer sentiment, very, very positive. 
in an upside scenario, we expect the U.S. to be a dominant. But also, if you look at the downside scenario, the U.S. tends to be the market with the most defensive characteristics. And if the trade wars or trade rhetoric does spin out of control, the U.S. also comes out as the relative winner. When we think about our equity allocation leaning toward the U.S., not only is there a fundamental case for that on the upside, but also the more defensive characteristics on the downside. Similarly, within fixed income, I think what you'll see is there's been a decided effort to de-emphasize corporate credit and to emphasize more in government bonds and agencies. Again, with the idea, if you're going to be taking risk in a portfolio, to come back to a point that Rob mentioned, how do you introduce a bit more flexibility and other ways of introducing ballast into the portfolio? So leaning more heavily toward treasuries and agencies as opposed to corporate credit, which is the mere opposite of really where we would have been in 2015 and 16, is a big shift in our portfolios also from an asset allocation standpoint. Yeah, and I think what Jeff points to there is really interesting because what he's saying there is let's build in some positive asymmetry into the portfolio, and Jeff's big on that. But when he talks about the assets and how we look at the assets here and how we look across the capital structure of the economy, what he's effectively saying is the value to be extracted from corporate credit, from investment-grade credit, there isn't the value there anymore. But if you look at treasuries and you actually look at the short end of dollar rates market and you compare that to investment-grade credit – the short end and the curve of dollar rates offers much more value relative to the risk that you're carrying. And at the end of the cycle, actually, you have the beneficial or the ballast effect of treasuries, whereas IG credit isn't going to offer you that same ballast. So U.S. equities married with treasuries for this part of the cycle looks like a nice diversified position, but gives you that upside downside asymmetry that we're looking to create for our clients. And do we feel that adding treasury exposure and the subsequent duration exposure that that means for portfolios is a safe place to be in an environment where the Fed is normalizing interest rates and the balance sheet? That is a big concern for investors today. So how do we think about that risk? Again, I think when we come back and saying, if you tend to think about really where the direction of travel is, is while the Fed's communicating they're going to raise rates, If growth ends up being less than stellar, either because of problems in the emerging world or you don't get the robust growth in Europe, at a certain point, the Fed will reach the point that they stop hiking, whether this happens sometime in 2019 or early 2020. Again, the whole idea of having more duration in the portfolio, it does present that ballast. So if growth is less than stellar and the Fed doesn't keep on hiking, and we're not getting the inflationary pressure where the Fed is behind the curve, the Treasury exposure will be negatively correlated with risk assets and U.S. equities in particular in that environment. Yeah, and that's a really good point. But if you look at the flatness of the curve between two tens now, if the feeling is that, hang on a second, I'm taking on too much rates risk, too much duration, what if I'm wrong? When I am wrong, you can come down the curve. You can come right in and the short end of the dollar curve is offering tremendous value tremendous return compared to other economies or other currencies within the U.S. construct, again, to Jeff's point. You've got the ability to pick upside out of the equity market, and you've got the ability to lay in ballast through the treasury and short-end elements of the curve. Mm. And you don't have that ability elsewhere around the world. So that's another Mm. reason why we favor the U.S. over other economies. Mm. And let's talk about perhaps some of the instruments to do that. Are you advocating holding cash? Are there other instruments that you would use to actually get that exposure in portfolios? 
Well, one thing that we do think about, certainly one choice for getting exposure is through physicals. So you could invest with an equity manager and have him buy equities. We could buy futures as well to get that economic exposure. But one thing that we've also will do in portfolios, again, with the idea of introducing more ballast, which is increasingly important for a group of clients that are not necessarily looking at everything within an alpha and tracking error context and looking for you to deliver performance within a defined set of betas, but they care about how downside risk is managed, where we are holding more concentrated exposure, where we have a much more positive view, we'll hold more of that exposure conditionally through long calls which means that it gives us much more flexibility to express our asset allocation views in a more meaningful way. So you take it where we are today. We've mentioned that the U.S. is our favored market. Well, while we're carrying overweight positions to U.S. equities, a third of that is through long calls on the S&P, which means that if we're right directionally, it will give us more exposure. But if the markets sell off and that wasn't the right place to be, the calls effectively go to zero and it takes us out of that risk. And I think what Jeff just laid out there is really key to the way that we think about things. It's if we are right, then this happens. If we are wrong, then this happens. We're continually stress testing mm. what will happen in our portfolio in various different market scenarios. So we don't just jump in and say, oh, yeah, we're definitely going to be right here. We're always looking at what happens if or when we're wrong and what those next steps in that chess game will be mm. and how the portfolio will stack up and how resilient it is. Yeah, as an example, I mean, today... Because we're holding so much of our U.S. equity exposure conditionally with calls, U.S. equities represent 72% of our equity risk. If we were wrong on the U.S. being the place to express that view, the U.S. will represent about 55% of our equity exposure. And when you say, if we're wrong, does that mean the markets draw down and the options trade out of the money, and that's what drives the decreased position in portfolios? Well, if either the U.S. was the wrong place to be and other markets went up, or if the U.S. sold off, what would happen was you'd lose a lot less by holding the calls than if you actually had the money in the market. So how do we think about flexibility as a tool to do these things? You mentioned before, Jeff, this idea that many clients want you to have benchmark-oriented positions and they lay out a very granular, specific benchmark for Mm -hmm. you from which to make asset allocation decisions. But more and more of your clients have moved towards this more flexible approach where they're letting you operate to Rob's language with more degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. How do we think about that as a tool to manage risk? I mean, are there asset classes that you would sell out of completely? Are there Mm -hmm. asset classes that you would go into more significantly Mm -hmm. if you saw an opportunity? What do you do with that degree of freedom? Well, again, I think you manage your portfolio very differently. If a client has given you a defined set of betas and they're defining success by delivering a specified amount of alpha and very defined tracking, which means that no matter what your views are, the range of your allocation decisions will be very constrained around those set of betas. So that particular client, really they are accepting that 90 to 95% of their outcome is defined by those set of betas because they're putting very narrow guardrails. For instance, today where we are de-emphasizing corporate credit in favor of holding more securitized credit within portfolios, well, we're not bound to hold any corporate credit in the portfolio. In the end, that will migrate toward close to zero as we build up an allocation in securitized credit. You couldn't do that in a portfolio where the client's given you a very defined benchmark and defining success around a set of eight betas, for instance. 
So there are a lot of tools that investors consider using in their portfolios. And I know derivatives has a certain connotation for folks, but one narrow way to look at it is it's simply one way to turn up the volume in portfolios, that it helps you emphasize the views that you already have. But are there other ways to think about using derivatives that are more prudent, maybe with an eye towards risk? It's a good question. I think people often look at derivatives and think of it as dialing up the portfolio. I look at it as you can use it to turn down the portfolio. You can use it to change the timber of the portfolio, so adjust the base or adjust the treble without changing the volume. I like to think about it like that. Jeff had mentioned earlier about using calls to access the upside but manage the downside. So in that respect, I wouldn't look at it as being turning up the volume. I'd look at it as being changing the volume but turning it down. You can use derivatives to access the market in a different way, through different points. You can use them for portfolios that might be constrained from a funded basis. You can use it to access markets that wouldn't give you that access in physical format. They're not just about adding on more risk, having the ability to change the dimension of the portfolio. The really interesting thing also with derivatives is they allow you to add in convexity into the portfolio. If you're worried about the downside, you can buy puts. If you're worried about what if you're wrong, on the upside, on your conviction, you can buy calls. So it gives you that ability to change the dimensions of the portfolio rather than just scaling it up or scaling it down. So I think there's many different ways that you can access them. Of course, like any tools, if you overuse them or you use them without the correct knowledge or expertise or without the correct risk control in place, they can do some damage to your portfolio. But we operate in a very risk-controlled environment here. So we're continually looking at the risks that we're running both on the upside and the downside and in normal market conditions. And when we use these tools, we use them with those constraints and viewpoints in mind. I would almost use the analogy of a good surgeon. I mean, we're coming in with a tool in a very, very specific way, either to help to facilitate asset allocation shifts, to mitigate downside risk, to hedge specific exposures. How are you thinking about liquidity risk, particularly at this point where Who knows when the end of the cycle happens, but we're certainly closer to it than we were four or five years ago. What are the specific things that you look at or think about on that score? Yeah, and you mentioned 2007-8 earlier, and I said history rhymes. And I think one of the big issues over the last 10 years, there's been an abundance of liquidity, an injection of liquidity into the system. And not all that liquidity has shown up in generalized inflation. It's shown up in asset inflation. But the liquidity's kind of stayed in Wall Street and hasn't made its way to Main Street because of changes in regulation, changes in liquidity ratios, et cetera, et cetera. As we enter into the next phase of the cycle, what we'll see is, and we're seeing the Fed already uh, withdrawing at the front end by raising rates and looking at tapering its balance sheet or reducing its balance sheet at the back end. You're seeing that liquidity withdrawal occur, and it is going to buy it. That liquidity withdrawal is coterminous with the end of the business cycle or a turn in the business cycle both domestically in the U.S. and internationally. Then you've got a situation where you've got three things going on. You've got a business cycle, you've got a withdrawal of liquidity, and you'll have a market cycle turn at the same time. Mm-hmm. Liquidity management is very important for us and how we access liquidity in the market. Again, it goes down to the degrees of freedom. But it's a topic of ongoing conversation, monitoring, discussion, debate within our group as to how we think about moving out of certain asset classes versus other asset classes. And I talked to you about degrees of freedom, and one of the degrees of freedom is liquidity. So when we think about cash, when we think about the short end of the curve, when we think about treasuries, we don't always look at it as just the value that you get from the current yield on those assets. We also look at the value 
in extremis. When the cycle turns, how valuable is it to have an asset where it's either going up in value, as in treasuries might be if rates sell off, or if it's cash or shorter down the curve, where it holds its own value when other assets are falling in price. So what's its relative value in those extreme scenarios? So that's another thing that we consider. It's not just about the sticker price. It's about what the value is when you need it. Mm -hmm. One thing that's also been important is the dynamics are changing and new information is going to come in that will show some level of flexibility. And a great example is what our positioning was like coming into the year versus where we are today. For anyone that has followed our views over any period of time, they know that we began shifting from a view of the U.S. versus the rest of the world to synchronize global growth in the second half of 2016. We hit the pause button around that November election and reaccelerated by moving more toward overweight positions to equities in a more globally diversified portfolio, emphasizing both developed and emerging, and came into 2018 position that way as well. But again, as the year unfolded, and I think it was really beyond the trade wars, but really looking at the Fed continuing on the path of raising rates, financial conditions getting tighter in the emerging world, seeing that earnings revisions were actually trending lower in the emerging world versus the developed world at a time where fundamentals in the U.S. were getting stronger. And it's important that we pivot as new information is coming in, and they were not dogmatic. How do you think about diversifying the risk exposures in your portfolio away from perhaps your overarching view? If you've got everything to line up against this one overall view, and you know you said it yourself earlier, what if we're wrong? Right. How do you think about diversifying that exposure so right. that you don't have all of the portfolio sure. aligned up to this one particular sure. view? Well, certainly one thing that's important is that where we do have a very high conviction view, it is important that we are holding a large part of that through conditional exposure when we are expressing that view. And but conditional still exposure, you is mean holding, holding the call options. Yep. Okay. But that being said, you're still building a level of diversification within the portfolio. It's not that you don't have anything in non-U.S. equities or nothing in emerging markets at this point, just less than you would have had. So it's really at the margin you could take a bit more risk there. Also, the fixed income allocation is very diversified, not only between government bonds in the U.S. and government bonds outside the U.S., but introducing agencies which move with treasuries but are somewhat diversifying. Our exposure across both securitized market and what we end up holding in corporate credit, while it's leaning more towards securitized credit, is very, very well diversified. And do you think about... But you can still have the flexibility to hold a zero weight in things that you don't like if you're not bound by a tracking error constraint. You can be very well diversified, as I think we are, but do it in a way where you're not bound by a tracking error constraint and holding an asset class. The important thing is to be able to hold zero in something that you have a very negative view on. But I think equally, as the next phase of the cycle unfolds, there'll be a risk-off moment. But there'll be a moment when there's tremendous value in certain asset classes that are unloved. And if we have the flexibility, the degrees Mm -hmm. of freedom, and the liquidity to take advantage of that, Mm -hmm. and to get paid the liquidity premium that we know is going to be offered up at a certain point in time in the cycle, and that premium is way above the market premium Mm -hmm. um, you should be paying for this, that you should be getting for that asset, if you can capture that liquidity premium, it's extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. Extremely valuable. It comes with some price volatility at the time, Mm. but actually from a fundamental perspective, that's a real value play that we'd love to be in a position to access. And does that require that your investors have a long-term view 
to be able to capture that liquidity premium. For sure, investors have got to have a long-term view, but we've got to earn their trust too. What Rob is describing is kind of interesting. If you turn the dial back to 2008 and 2009, well, I don't think we were as aggressive in de-risking going into 2008. We had enough liquidity and understood the dislocation that was occurring in the credit market that we were able to express very sizable positions in the credit market going into 2009 when owning high yield in any extended credit did much, much better than equities, both on a total return and risk-adjusted basis. Yeah, and I think people tend to talk about the market as this generic, homogenized book of assets or a spectrum of assets, but actually it's a series of small markets that are interconnected. And myself and Jeff have been talking about different markets are at different phases of their own individual cycles. When we had 2008-9, if you look back and you dissect that period by time buckets, you'll see the fixed income sold off first, but recovered quicker than equities. Mm -hmm. So to Jeff's point, if you can analyze and understand what various segments of the markets are doing, this is the wonderful thing about operating a multi-asset space, is you get to look at all the markets and the interconnectivity mm -hmm. of those markets. And you can say, oh, look, I'll step out of that market, but I'll step into another one, or I'll mm -hmm. step out of that market and I'll wait. I'll wait mm -hmm. in treasuries or I'll wait at the short end of the curve because there aren't enough markets offering significant value here where I'm getting paid to take the risk on. Mm -hmm. And I'll wait until I am getting paid. So it gives you that flexibility and that dynamism or ability to be dynamic, both on the way down and on the way up, but especially at the turns. And we're entering into a turn. Now, will it happen in six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months? We don't know. But we're positioning so that we have the degrees of freedom so that when it comes that we're not left trying to take all of the action at once, to your point about liquidity. That's an interesting topic. I also wanted to just touch quickly on the client types that you manage money for, because a risk-neutral allocation for a pension plan is very different than a risk-neutral allocation for a total return investor versus someone who's an endowment and foundation and focus on managing risk against inflation. So, Jeff, how do you think about the starting place mm -hmm. off of which to jump when you think about diversifying risks? Well, again, if you think about a defined benefit plan, a real risk, it's almost like thinking about a seesaw. There are hedge assets that behave like your liabilities, and the growth assets, typically you start with an equity portfolio. And the real question is too much in equities because it's the biggest driver of drawdown. Basically, a drawdown in terms of risk and declines in funded status drives you toward holding more in bonds. But again, from a risk standpoint, the more we can think about diversifying away from equities into other asset classes that can deliver equity-like returns with a narrower range of outcome gives us more flexibility to perhaps run with marginally lighter hedges but not expose the client to more risk. And a great example is if you looked at 2010, when the real estate market was bottoming, we were selling equities and put 10% of these portfolios into core real estate, which went on to generate double-digit returns at far less risk than if we were holding equities over that period. Thank you for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the J.P. Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on our website, recorded on September 11, 2018. 
For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited. ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. 
in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.